It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, April 17th. On today's show, I want to offer my final thoughts on Championship Weekend in Monte Carlo, the first ATP 1000 level event of the clay court season certainly delivered us plenty to discuss throughout the course of the week. And I would point all of you to the mini break podcast I recorded this weekend with our dear friend David Kane. If you're looking to hear about some of the off-court drama that unfolded on today's show, I want to focus on the on-court action we saw over the final two rounds. Obviously, the biggest storyline is the fact that Andre Rublev is now a Masters 1000 champion. Rublev earning the biggest title of his career with a couple of come-from-behind victories this weekend. Three sets over both Taylor Fritz in the semifinals and Holger Runa in the finals. Look, Andre Rublev is a guy who has been this player that we see now really for the majority of the past three four seasons. I'd go all the way back to 2019. And the reason I bring that up is I don't think something extraordinarily different occurred throughout the course of the week in Andre Rublev's game. There was no dramatic change that led him to have the success he did in Monte Carlo, but there were a few things on the margins I noticed, things that if you've been a close observer of Andre Rublev's game, you'll have noticed have clearly improved over the course of the past four seasons, and those small developments are what I want to discuss as it relates to Andre Rublev here on today's show. He truly is a testament to the power of longevity. And again, was it a little bit right place, right time? Sure. But Andre Rublev earns a Masters 1000 title. I don't think any of us are shocked to see that unfold. Certainly so many players, so many of his peers were so quick to congratulate Rublev, clearly one of the most liked players in the locker room right now. Again, we focused on those off-court perceptions with DK over the weekend. I want to talk about the on-court perception I now have about Andre Rublev. While the 30,000-foot view remains the same, there are some details that he continues to improve upon and will explore those those excuse me here on today's show i do still believe though despite rublev winning the title the biggest on court development relates to 19 year old holger runa i don't know what the best version of runa looks like yet but my imagination has gone running after watching him play throughout the course of this weekend simply put There's just not a lot Holger Runa can't do on a tennis court. And putting all of those pieces together is obviously the ultimate challenge for any tennis player. But 
the pieces are there. The weapons are there. And to see the totality of things he was able to do just throughout the course of this weekend against both Sinner and Rublev, I mean, how is he not – and this is not a hot take. I think I was a little slower getting here than maybe some others – I joke about this all the time, and it's been a while since I've referred to this list, but I talk about my tier one, right? And the way I define tier one is, do I think you are guaranteed to win a slam title by the ending of this decade? Now, Holgaruna will be under 30. In fact, he'll be, what, if he turns 20 here in 2023, you know, six years from now, he'll be 26 as we enter the 2020, uh, 2030 season. Some scholars would argue he will either just be in the midst of his absolute peak or he will still be ascending towards that point of his career. I don't know what that peak's going to look like, but I think Holgaruna's got to be a tier one guy now, particularly with just seeing how easy it is for him on this surface. And again, that's a long synopsis, but I'll get into what I mean throughout the course of today's show. Done a lot of Fritz talk, a lot of Runa talk, uh, excuse me, Sinner talk here in 2023, so I won't I'll do my best, excuse me, to avoid repeating myself. I want to focus on those first two guys more so than Fritz or Sinner. But again, on today's show, final thoughts on everything that happened in Monte Carlo. I do want to offer a quick look ahead at everything this week on the ATP and WTA Tour as well because, God, is it fun to be a tennis fan right now. If you know how good the action is week in, week out, I actually think tennis delivers – on a weekly basis, I mean, that's just a fact, more frequently, more successfully than any other sport. And it's funny, quick tangent to begin today's show. I, of course, I was going to say something stupid. Oh, it's not stupid. I was going to say, as a man, but I don't think that qualifier means anything. As a sports fan is really the better qualifier. Of course, I'm watching NBA playoffs right now. I think playoff hockey can get pretty exciting. And fun fact you may not know about me, my younger brother's name, Nicholas Steven Gruskin. Why is he named that? Because from 1996 to April 2002, the Red Wings, Detroit Red Wings, were the team in our town. And Nick Lidstrom, Steve Iserman, they were the captains. Captain, assistant captain, whatever. One had the C, Iserman. The other had the A, Lidstrom. And we were, my older brother and I were like, well, what if we just, because, you know, they had two sons already. And they, they kind of were out of names. They were like, I don't know. What do you want to name this one? And my older brother and I both have middle initials as S. So that was clearly going to be the case for my younger brother. And we were like, well, what if we go with Nicholas Steven? I don't think that was the exact genesis. I'm not going to give six-year-old me and certainly not nine-year-old Eric Ruskin that much credit. But anyways, <laughs> that was not the tangent, surprisingly. Shout out Nicholas Steven Gruskin. Um I've been watching playoff basketball. I'm getting ready for playoff hockey. And there certainly is a degree of excitement with the finality of the playoffs, the added intensity, the added importance. And I do think to some extent, yes, the Grand Slams have that added importance. But I do wonder how we can get that do-or-die intensity to be sustained. I mean, you see, I suppose, frames of it, right, in tennis on the weekends, championship weekends, certainly final matches seem to always have a playoff intensity regardless of the level of the event. But there is an added excitement, maybe because of the rarity of the playoffs. They only come once a year versus tennis, which is constantly littered throughout the course of the calendar to both positive and negative for both positive and negative effects, excuse me. I don't know. Just uh, uh, what I guess 
I mean, the answer is so clearly the Grand Slams and the second weeks of the Slams in particular. I would say round of 16 day is probably the closest tennis gets, you know, that first day of the second week at a slam to playoff intensity because there are so many matches and so much is happening. That reminds me most, I would say, of first round NBA, NFL, NHL. Not really a big baseball playoffs guy anymore. I think the Tigers lost me after Nate Robertson delivered one of the worst pitching performances I've ever seen in the World Series against Houston. What was that? Oh, five. And it was just devastating. Um, Shout out Jeremy Bonderman, though ace of that team. Shout out Chris Shelton. His month of April, what was that? 2004 or 5 when he hit like 13 home runs in three weeks. Anyways, we're not going to do that here on today's show. We're going to rein today's podcast back in. Point is, uh, the question I ask all of you at Crack Rackets, at A.L. Gruskin, you know where to find us. What in your mind is the tennis equivalent of NBA playoffs, of NFL playoffs. It has to be the second week of slams, right? But even then, does it capture? Yeah, I think it's the second week of slams. I think I just talked myself into it pretty easily, but let me know what you think, because that was certainly a thought I had in my head, and I'm curious if any tennis plus sports fans, male or female, um, want to tune in. I want to offer their thoughts on everything that's unfolding right now. And again, what's going on in the sporting world? I'm always curious where sports fans place tennis in their hierarchy, particularly in non-major times of the season. But all that said, we're going to leave that tangent in because why not? Uh, Let's talk about the power of longevity. Let's talk about Andre Rublev. Let's talk about everything that happened in championship weekend here in Monte Carlo. And then again, I guess to finish the tangent, the quick look ahead, Stuttgart this week, I love, love indoor clay tennis. That's like, I think it's the ultimate nerd spot because you just don't see it ever on the calendar. And to have the weapons of an arena, Sabalenka, Elena Rabakina, indoors always are going to cause problems. But then you add in the clay court element, the ease with which, or, you know, indoor tennis allows Iga Sviantek to be that much better on serve, plus the physicality of clay. I just, I love Stuttgart. I love it. It's on the calendar this week. You know, Zverev, Djokovic, Alcaraz, everyone's in play on the men's side with Barcelona and I believe Munich. And I think that I forget what event Djokovic is playing, but that third ATP tour level event that's happening this week. It's a great week in the professional tennis world. We'll talk about it all here on today's show. Of course, before we do, quick shout out to all of you who tune in day in, day out. Quick shout out, of course, as well to our friends at Tennis Point for all of the latest equipment in the tennis world at the greatest prices. Go to tennis-point.com today. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. All right, let's talk Andre Rublev. His first Masters 1000 title in Monte Carlo. Uh, you know, again, two three set victories. Both of them come from behind victories. You look for Rublev throughout the course of the weekend, gets a 5 7 6 1 6 3 win over Fritz, then a 5 7 6 2 7 5 victory over Holgaruna. Statistically, the first serve was a mess, and you saw that with your eyes. Now, I do think the conditions. In Monte Carlo, windy, rainy on that semifinal day certainly factored into Rublev's 55% first serve percentage, but he only made 
50%, 49.5 technically, of his first serves against Holger Runa in the final match. Against, you know, Struff even in the semis, he made 50%. Against Munar in the first round, he made 44%. This was not a good week for the first serve of Andre Rublev. It wasn't a week where he was just blitzing people with his first serve, his first forehand so successfully that there was nothing they could do. And that's been the typical scouting report on Andre Rublev, right? We can all see it with our eyes and the that he does, lets out when he Sorry, that was my poor man's Rublev impression. Um, leave it in. Um, despite that being the scouting report, that when he's landing that first serve, when his feet are set, when he's able to dictate, particularly from that ad corner, forehand inside out, inside out to open up the inside in, you think you're going to challenge his on-the-run forehand. He's so good at striking that ball early and down the line and blitzing you and taking time away with the open space you've created by, you know, again— trying to push that ball cross-court, particularly with an on-the-run forehand as his opponent. That's when he hits that down-the-line ball so successfully as a counter. Again, the typical scouting report, the overwhelming Andre Rublev. That's not what he did throughout the course of championship weekend. Go watch the footage against Taylor Fritz. Go watch the footage against Holger Runa. Andre Rublev was the more physical, more defensive better counterpunching player, or certainly against Holger Runa, more consistent counterpunching player in each of his matches throughout the course of championship weekend. And this gets back to, again, developing on the margins. I don't know if Andre Rublev's maximized his forehand, but if it doesn't get any better throughout the course of his career, he will still have one of the 10 best forehands on tour for his ever long, for however long, excuse me, that he plays. The first serve percentage has always been low-hanging fruit for improvement for Andre Rublev. His career average, 60.4%. You look at the average for a top 50 player right now, 63.1%. He's always been, you know, that first serve has always been a struggle for him. That second serve has always, you know, first serve percentage, excuse me. That second serve has always sat up a little bit too much as a kick. You know, he continues to improve on those things, but I think we know who he is right now as a server, The two things he has improved more throughout the course of his career that you don't necessarily see manifest themselves in the stats, although I know Craig O'Shaughnessy wrote a good piece on it for the ATP website today, are the consistency of his backhand. And for those who truly have studied Rublev from the beginning, dating back to his time as a former world junior number one, shout out to Colette Lewis, who would provide footage, who would provide coverage of all Andre Rublev's uh, success. Those who watched him, not just with his 2019 breakthrough season, and that's when he did it, I would say, at a more commercial level. And by that, I mean he earned 37 victories on the ATP Tour, won, you know, what, two-thirds of his matches, I think, ended that season uh, with a U.S. Open second-week appearance. But, of course, the real breakthrough, the OGs know, that he made that big breakthrough in 2017 when he won that title in Umag at the end of July and made the quarterfinals as an unseeded player at the U.S. Open. Got blitzed by Rafa in that quarterfinal, but that was the first time, you know, then a 20-year-old Andre Rublev really came to the mainstream's attention given he was a former world junior number one. Even then, he had the serve. He had the forehand more than anything else. He did not have the physicality. And to see the way Andre Rublev has developed as an athlete over the course of the past half decade, he is not just an average. You know, it's not like a Taylor Fritz transformation where he went from bad mover to acceptable mover, but still not elite twitchiness. 
Andre Rublev is kind of he's kind of springy now, dare I say. I don't want to say spry because that doesn't feel like the right word, but did you see him scoot around the court against Holgaruna? Holgaruna did the majority of the dictating, particularly throughout the course uh, courses of sets 1 and 3. And Andre Rublev was extending rallies. Andre Rublev was changing directions, sprinting and covering the stretch backhand and getting enough on that ball to either A, dip it low enough at Holgaruna's feet that he didn't have a clean cut first volley, or B, get that ball back with enough depth that Holgaruna couldn't even, you know, pretend to charge forward. Rublev dug out of his corner in the backhand wing against both Runa and Fritz. And if you don't believe me against Taylor Fritz, go watch the highlights. Go watch how long and physical those points were. Go watch on the three-all breakpoint chance Taylor uh, Fritz tries to fight off. I think it's three-all, 30-40 in the third set. It's about a 30-ball rally that, yes, Taylor Fritz did a great job extending on multiple occasions, but Fritz is the one who hits the bailout drop shot. And Rublev's able to hit it on, uh, you know, a... A perfectly executed approach shot backhand down the line that just skids off the baseline, lands good. He gets the break. He holds from there. Andre Rublev has hit a plane physically that I did not know he was going to be capable of hitting. Not necessarily from a fitness standpoint because to sustain the amount of racket speed, sustain the amount of body turn, to generate the forehand with as much pace and consistency as he does throughout the course of a match, that takes an inherent base of fitness that Andre Rublev has always had. But to see him become, again, fluid in the corners, to see him be able to drive his backhand with continued depth, continued pace, to see how many freaking returns he put in play against Taylor Fritz. And there was one moment where Taylor Fritz gets broken. I want to say it's in set number two for the first time he's broken, where after getting broken, he mouths to his box, I don't know where to serve. They're all coming back. And it was the forehand wing. It was the backhand wing. If Andre Rublev got a stick on the ball, that ball was coming back service line or deeper. And again, the consistency on the backhand is the more obvious improvement. He's just able to generate that ball with better depth. He did a great job taking his backhand down the line, not allow Holgaruna to dictate from the ad side of the court. And Runa did such a great job of finding Rublev's backhand, the counter. Rublev has clearly developed to every player who goes about targeting his backhand because why in hell would you ever target the Andre Rublev forehand? The counter he's clearly developed over the last three years is to take that backhand line. And you saw him take that backhand line. You saw him hit a couple of exceptional defensive lobs throughout the course of the match. I mean, again, it was just a... It was a counter-punching skill set that allowed him to get through the aggressive Runa. And even go look at the stats from the first set. Runa hits 11 winners, as does Rublev. Runa hits 19 unforced errors to Rublev 13. Rublev's the one, uh, excuse me, Runa's the one on the front foot. Uh, Runa's the one doing the dictating. He's the one missing more. You know, Rublev's effectively a counterpuncher in those positions. And that's not to say he didn't impose himself with his first forehand when he had the opportunity to do so. You look for Rublev, you know, who does win 75% of his first serve points when he was able to land that first serve. But the majority of the points you will remember from this match involve the physicality of Andre Rublev, who, and this gets me to part two full circle here, stayed the course mentally in a way I mean, yes, you saw the frustrations. Of course, you saw him yell at himself. But what are the two most pivotal swings 
really three you'd have to point to, given he was down 4-1 in the third set. But I think the two most pivotal swings from the course of championship weekend, Rublev's up an early break on Fritz, he gives the break back, he drops the first set 7-5. Rublev's extraordinarily competitive with Runa through the first set, gets broken, drops the first set 7-5. How do the second sets begin in both the semifinals and the finals for Andre Rublev? He opens up each set with a break of his opponent's serve. And that calming moment, that ability to work his way back into the match, that ability to ensure the frustration doesn't build up, he's back on course, he's in it for the long haul. I mean, again, he turns 26 years old. Let's remember, he's still 25, even though it feels like Andre Rublev's got to be 28, 29 years old in in the midst of his peak. He still has a good five, six years left of playing this level of tennis, assuming his body holds up and he has put a lot of matches on his body over the course of the past four years. But it was just a a mature match. Like it was the most two mature matches from a game plan perspective, from a stability perspective that I've seen from Rublev, maybe of his career. And look, again, those were the two pivotal moments. I would also point out Set number three against Holgaruna. He's down 4-1, love 30. He's down 4-1, you know, 30-40, serving for Runa to go up a double break 5-1. Now, Runa gets a look at a return. The return, you know, Rublev hits a good T-serve. Runa kind of catches him off guard. He floats a forehand slice wide. Rublev's able to win a free point in that moment. Able to get through the finish line, or able to get the hold, able to break right back for 3-4 after a, you know, and how often does that happen, right? When a player's on the brink of earning that double break, that 5-1 pulling away, all of a sudden they're not able to do it. Now they get broken and things are back level. Rublev was able to be the one who forced that sort of comeback. Rublev was able to get back-to-back top 10 victories, beat a Karen Hatchinov early in the event as well. And look, I mean, in 2023, Rublev's 18-8, and eight, and you look at his numbers, it's actually lower than his career averages. He's holding serve 82% of the time right now. That's actually smack dab his career average, but lower than the 86 and 85% he's had the last three seasons. He's breaking serve 23.9% of the time. His career average is 24.6. Again, I don't think Andre Rublev is playing his most outstanding tennis. I think he's playing his most consistent tennis. I think he's playing his steadiest tennis. I think the vacillation between his ceiling and his floor has narrowed so significantly that just the valleys you used to see in Andre Rublev matches, at least this week in Monte Carlo, we didn't see them. And again, that's a credit to him. Who he's stuck with the same coach for about the past five, you know, five years now, and you'd wonder. You know, this is a guy in Andre Rublev who, let's be clear, 2022 makes the year on finals. 2021 makes the year on finals. 2020 makes the year on finals. He's been a top eight guy for the last three years. Some scholars could argue he's stagnated. And maybe at that point, you know what the base is. You want a fresh voice, just a new perspective to mix things up in your game. That has not been the case for Andre Rublev. He has stayed the course, continued to believe that his weapons, his versatility, or not his versatility, his weapons, his physicality can ultimately win out. And in Monte Carlo this week, he was proven right. Again, extraordinarily impressive consistency. He's gotten better as a volleyer as well, though he didn't have to do it that frequently against Rublev, though he did have to hit a couple of overheads in 
tricky predicaments uh, when protecting those first serve, first forehands uh, combination when, again, he was able to make it. But look, Rublev was the steadier of the two players. And you look for Andre Rublev now since the start of this, you know, again, I always say the pandemic era, since August 2020, Andre Rublev has been this guy. For three and a half years now, he's won two-thirds of his matches. He's won 48 and 58, 72% win percentage. You look for him, he's now made, what, 32 different quarterfinals during this stretch of time, including the quarterfinals at seven different Masters events. He's made six different slam quarterfinals since August 2020. So that's what, two slams plus eight. So in the last 10 slams, he's made uh, 11, excuse me, if you include this year's Australia. In the last 11 slams, he's made six quarterfinals. We don't glorify the—I I said this with David Kane over the weekend, so I won't repeat myself in the whole rant— Andre Rublev's not going to need a second job. And I think ultimately that's what you aspire for as a professional athlete, that you're so successful in your craft that that's all you have to do. That from whenever you retire onwards, now you just get to be a human being and enjoy the uh, reap the successes of all the hard work you put in for those first 35 years of life and enjoy the fact that, yeah, I may not have kneecaps, but I got millions of dollars to help maneuver me around the world in whatever the most comfortable fashion is. And if that's the goal we all ascribe for in life, which is Andre Rublev's going to achieve that. Like, uh, and again, he's so well liked. I don't think I have to make the pitch for why the case for Andre Rublev. Does this change my perceptions of his ceiling? No, it doesn't. I think if Holger Runa plays his best match, and that's where we'll get to in a second, I think Runa beats him. I think Carlos Alcaraz at his best still beats him. I think Djokovic at his best still beats him. I think Sinner at his best still beats him. But Andre Rublev's in the mix. Always. And the power of longevity. Again, you make seven different Masters quarterfinals since August 2020. You make six different Slam quarterfinals. You're just going to be in the mix. And move over Matteo Berrettini. We have a new flag bearer of Tier 2. It's Andre Rublev. He's a top 10 guy. This is what he looks like. I don't know if people will take this in a negative connotation. Will he be his generation's David Ferrer, a guy you just know is always going to be in the mix, or a Tomas Burdich, or, you know, again, I don't think Sanga was as consistent as Burdich in particular or Ferrer, but, like, is Rublev his generation's Burdich? Some scholars are arguing yes. Again, at A.L. Gruskin, at Crack Rackets, let us know if you de- agree or disagree. Biggest title of Andre Rublev's career. You look for him now at the ATP level overall in his career. He wins title number 14 overall. Excuse me. Is that correct? Nope. That includes an ATP Cup title number 13 overall of his career. Certainly the biggest uh, coming at the 1000 level here in Monte Carlo. All right. That's everything on Rublev. Let's talk Runa, Sinner, Fritz. I got to start with Holger. I mean, this kid can do it all. I don't know what was more impressive, watching him dictate through the course of the first set against Andre Rublev or watching him absorb, redirect, and find ways to push Yannick Sinner on his back foot in that semifinal match. I mean, Holger Runa is so good at tennis. That is not a question for him moving forward. And you look at the numbers right now, Holgaruna, one of just six guys, excuse me, seven guys who ranked top 20 in both hold and break percentage in that list coming out of Monte Carlo. Djokovic, Sinner, top 10 club. We're throwing out Chilich because it's only one match. Hatchnov, Medvedev, top 15. 
top 20 club's the most fun place to be. Tiafo, Alcaraz, Runa, for what it's worth, top 25, Korda, Paul, Manorino, and Rublev. I mean, again, you watch Holger Runa play. The backhand is a slingshot, and his ability, oh, I just love his backswing. I love how he loads at his hip. I love how he drives through that ball, how he accentuates the follow-through over the finish, how it's so easy for him to both get outside the ball to generate not just angle, but pace and depth cross-court, as well as it is for him to turn his shoulder uh, a little bit more closed and flatten things out down the line. I love how aggressive he is now in searching out his forehand on that ad side corner, his ability to step into that forehand. The fact that his ground stroke technique is so fluid, his ability to absorb pace on the backhand wing, he he sh- he dominated. I don't know how he didn't just beat Sinner. He dominated Sinner in their backhand to backhand exchanges. Sinner could not hurt him hitting through the ad side of the court. And then on top of all that, Holger mixes in the drop shots. Holger mixes in the serve and volley. Holger can overhead. He hits the on the run magic. There is not a single shot in the tennis, you know, book that Holger Runa cannot execute. And yet, again, it's the ups and the downs. And, you know, he, he goes down an early break against Andre Rublev. He breaks back for two all, goes down immediately 4-2, set, and throws the set away. And, like, he's up 4-1. He has his break point chance, 4-5-1. Rublev holds. Runa gets broken for 3-4. You're back on serve there in the third set. And, again, Hokaruna's 19 years old. Putting all the pieces together— Finding himself, you know, becoming a little bit more steady, a little less chatter between he and his box, a little bit less chatter between he and the chair umpire, a little bit less chatter between he and the crowd. Well, first of all, I hope those things never go away because they're what make him such a captivating and compelling watch as a tennis player. You certainly see the manifestations of the internal struggle going through Hokaruna's mind throughout the course of a match. But God, I mean, again, his ability to absorb Yannick Sinner's pace and Look, Sinner could not make an approach shot to save his life in that match. That's what it came down to. Runa was getting away with good, not great drop shots that Sinner would get to, but would cook a backhand long or would undercook a slice. And now Runa, who moves as fluidly as anyone in tennis. Let me say that again. Holger Runa moves as well as anyone in tennis right now on the clay courts. If you don't put the approach shot away, Runa's there. He's going to come up with a second opportunity for a pass. You know, again, he, there were too many unforced errors against Andre Rublev. He he wasn't patient. He got a little bit slap happy. He got so frustrated with himself, with the crowd, with all of it. It was a credit to Rublev who stuck in the fight. And I think Holgaruna anticipated Rublev would go away and try to slap his way out of trouble. And that's just not what Andre Rublev did. And again, that's a testament to Rublev's game plan. But he, Runa's up 4-1 in the third and has a breakpoint chance for double break 5-1. And he loses the match. Obviously, again, you're 19 years old. That'll happen. Can't happen if he wants to be the great champion. That certainly he has the skill set to become. And I do think this is a match you lose at 19 to win at 22, to win at 25, to win at 28. It happens to young great players. And you looked at the stats. The only you know teenager to make more finals than Holgaruna, I think, over the or in the 21st or in the past like decade or whatever, is Carlos Alcaraz. You know, Runa. It's like Runa, Alcaraz, Nadal, the list of teenagers to make Masters finals on multiple surfaces. Djokovic might have done it as well. Who knows? But again, Runa's on that elite list now as well. I this, it was it was again 
his ability to generate pace against Rublev, as well as the ability to absorb, redirect pace, put constant pressure on Yannick Sinner. How many times was Sinner down 15-30 in that third set? And yes, the stickiness of the conditions, how slow it was, it played right into Holgaruna's hands because, again, fitness-wise, he was right there. And I do think that is a low-hanging fruit of success, I suppose, for him to take out of this whole week is how well his body held up. And, you know, again, Faruna to beat Berrettini, to beat Sinner, to be up a set and up 4-1 in the third on Andre Rublev. He's playing three top 10 guys back to back to back, 19 years old. He was right there in the fight and winning two of those three matches probably should have won all three. He didn't. But how could anyone watch? And, and last thing, what I liked so much about Holgaruna was his ability to do different things to make opponents uncomfortable. Against Sinner, two things he did extraordinarily well. Camp the bus, you know, uh, park the bus, as the soccer kids say. Park the bus on that backhand corner. Every ball was going to the ad side. I thought Runa did a really good job of taking his forehand down the line to at least force Sinner to have to pause, change directions, or just, you know, force Sinner to have to make a clear cut. All right, I'm going big backhand cross court that Runa could then more easily anticipate. And he just disrupted Yannick Sinner's rhythm. Never hit more than two shots in a row the same direction. Mixed in that drop shot so successfully down the stretch in sets two and three when it was clear Sinner was struggling with his confidence on those approach shots. You know, that's how he made uh, Sinner uncomfortable against Andre Rublev. It was backhand down the line to not allow Rublev to camp over on that ad side corner. The depth Holgarun is able to generate on his return of serve. Again, the fluidity on the surface. When Runa puts all the pieces together, he's just in the mix. Athletically, aggressively, skill set wise, it's all there. He's kind of a villain right now, which I don't hate. Uh, I like that he engages with the crowd. He feels their presence. He tries to make it an atmosphere. Sometimes it's to his own detriment. I think any 19-year-old does things to their own detriment at times. I certainly did. I imagine many of you listeners did as well. But he's getting better, man. And yeah, like the cold handshake with Yannick Sinner at the end, it's something to watch because you feel like these two may play certainly double-digit times throughout the course of their careers. I need to see Runa Alcaraz. I feel like we haven't seen that match at a significant stage yet. I don't think we've seen it at all. Yeah, I, I just it's the technique, how well he absorbed the pace of Yannick Sinner, how well he creates pace on his own. There's a lot to like in the game of Hogaruna, and that's not a revelation, but it all, like, you just saw shades of everything throughout his run in Monte Carlo. And, you know, again, Rublev up to number six in the live rankings with this win, one off his career high. Hogaruna's at his career high. He's up to number seven now, and he's got two, you know, Masters title in Paris, a Monte Carlo final now on his resume, French Open quarterfinal points as well. He should be number seven in the world, 19 years old. You know, again, we have two 19-year-olds in the top 10 and four players age 22 or younger in Felix, Sinner, Alcaraz, and Runa. I think we're ready to turn the page. Uh, again, I know I, we still want to see Djokovic, Nadal. It's going to be a really fun home stretch to each of their careers, no doubt. Djokovic still playing as well as anyone in the world, as we just saw in Australia, maybe even better than anyone in the world. But these guys are getting closer. They're young, and they have positioned themselves perfectly for the next decade. And look, for Yannick Sinner, couldn't make an approach. And I thought he was there physically. 
I thought he should have been a little bit more daring in taking his backhand down the line, but Holger was just hitting his forehand on the run so effectively. You know, again, I don't think Sinner served particularly well in those slow conditions, but he loses a match 1-6-7-5-7-5. He was up 30-love in that 5-6 service game. I thought more than anything we were going to a breaker, and I thought once we got to the breaker, Sinner would take it because Runa might crack mentally. But credit to Runa, just the consistent depth on the return of serve. Again, Yannick's moving better. It's him and the big four, the only guys in this century to make the semifinals of Indian Wells, Miami, and Monte Carlo to start a season. You look for, I just said, Yannick Sinner's top 10 in both hold and break percentage. He's up to number eight in the live rankings. That's a career high for the 21-year-old. It's crazy to me that he is ranked behind Holger Runa. He is, though. But he's top 10 in the world. And you look at the points race right now. Medvedev's one. Djokovic is two. Sinner didn't win Indian Wells. He didn't win Miami. He didn't win Monte Carlo. He's third in the points race. You know, he's now 185 points ahead of Carlos Alcaraz. Over 2,000 points already accumulated on the year. And we still have three slams to go. And we still have so many 1,000-level events. And he's 21 freaking years old. You look for Yannick Sinner now in terms of the yearly ELO ratings coming out of this. Medvedev won, Alcaraz 2. Sinner's now 3. Interesting. Rublev 4. Djokovic 5. He just doesn't have enough matches. Fritz 6. Korda 7. That just tells you how good he was mathematically in the month of January. And that's what I saw with my eyes, too. Korda 7. Runa 8. Tiafo 9. Hachinov 10. Yeah, I think those are the 10 best players in the world to start the season. Uh, who are we missing from that list? What, the Miami final, Sinner lost to someone, um, The to Medvedev. The Indian Wells final, Alcaraz beat Medvedev. Medvedev did all the winning in the Middle East. I guess Tsitsipas making the Australian Open final, but he's 11, and he did not have a good sunshine swing. Obviously, was a little injured. Yeah, I, I guess if you include Pass at 11, that's the right top 11. Like, I, I would agree with the ELO ratings. And I mean, you know, again, right now, I know I, I didn't mention Sin- or I didn't mention Taylor Fritz. I thought he moved really well. I thought he was really disciplined. He's just still learning how to craft points on clay courts. It, it's just he was a little too defensive, a little too reactive instead of proactive against Andre Rublev. He has the sort of weapons. I wouldn't have mind seeing him attack the Rublev forehand more cross court because whenever he did try to open things up, it felt like that's when you would finally see movement. I mean, Rublev did a really good job playing Fritz pretty even on the backhand wing. Again, Fritz didn't serve particularly well, or at least Rublev did return particularly well, but Fritz is a top 10 guy. Semifinals in Monte Carlo. I mean, he didn't make the semifinals in either. Uh, no, Medvedev didn't beat. Who did Medvedev beat in the semifinals in Miami? I don't remember. This is how this is how quickly things happen on the ATP tour, folks. Uh, again, semifinals of Miami. Daniil Medvedev beat Hachinov. Duh. Uh, I knew that. Um, yeah, like, again, for Fritz to not make semifinals at Indian Wells, for him to uh, did he make semifinals of Indian Wells? Who did who did Medvedev beat? In, no, he beat Tiafo, different American. He was quarters, I believe, uh, for Fritz. Anyways, he's a top ten guy. He's proven it. And you look for Taylor Fritz right now. He's ten in the live rankings. He's seven in the points race. Feels right coming out of the weekend. Uh, coming out of the week again. I thought it was a really fun week in Monte Carlo and Andre Rublev. 
power of longevity. You give yourself enough bites at the apple, 4-1, 30-40 down, comes back to win the third set, 7-5, comes back to take his first 1,000-level title. As fun as the week was in Monte Carlo, some scholars are arguing this week might be even more fun. And you look across the board, again, four tour-level events. Uh, You've got them, Banja Luka, that's where the other one is, Barcelona, Munich, and Stuttgart. I mean, just about everyone. That's a top 50, 30 player in the world, I should say, is playing in this main draw in Stuttgart. Iga, Sabalenka, Rabakina, Goff, Garcia, Jabur. I mean, some of the matchups you've already had in round number one. Pliskova plays Sakari. You know, Goff plays Kudermatova, Kasakina, Bedosa, Samsonova, Krejcikova. These are first-round matches. And Vekic, Alexandrova. I mean, again, like... Trevisan Haddad Maya on an indoor clay court is a fascinating matchup, particularly with how well Trevisan's played to start 2023. That Stuttgart draw is just just ridiculous here this week. And, you know, again, then on the men's side, you've got a 500 event in Barcelona. You've got 250s elsewhere featuring other top players in the world. And, you know, again, just looking in Barcelona, you've got the top seed, Alcaraz. You've got Tsitsipas trying to regain his form. Sinner right back on the court as the number four seed. French Open finalist, Casper Rude, your third seed. Tiafo, who really has been a top 10 player this year. He's in the mix. You've got guys like Nori, who struggled of late. Musetti playing better, but not his best. After the win over Djokovic, though, he's got some momentum. It's a really fun week. I mean, again, like you look at some of the first round matchups, Shelton versus Mackey. Uh, you know, I think Nicolas Yari uh, is going to get a for or his second match, but his first match of the tournament for Karen Hatchinov is against Nicolas Yari. Atchevery, Davidovich, Fokina, two guys who are really physical on this surface. Even Schwartzman, Ebing, Wu here on clay. I'm all in on that. Like... It's going to be really, you know, Alcaraz, Nuno Borges. Nuno gets a really good win in the first round, two and three over Ilya Ivashka. I mean, come on. Like, that's draw number one. You've got Monte Carlo finalist Holger Runas, the top seed in Munich. Second seed, Taylor Fritz. He's right back in the thick of things. You've got guys like Zverev, Sebi Baez, who's clearly one of the 20 best players in the world on clay. Marrakesh champion Roberto Carbeas Baena, Lorenzo Sanego. Tricky unseated guys, Yannick Hanfman, Christian Green, who've always been good on the clay. Aslan Karatsev had to come through qualifying just to get into the main draw of this 250 in Munich. Yeah, that's the good stuff. And then, of course, Monte Carlo champion Andre Rublev. He is in action this week, at least for now. He has not pulled out. Uh, you look at the events, of course, again, over in Banja Luka, the, uh, which I believe is located in uh, I want to say northwest region of uh, – I'm not sure. I'll have to look up. I think it's in Bosnia. I'm pretty sure it's in Bosnia. Not 100% sure. Um, northwest region. I don't know why I said northwest region. I, I meant like top left. Uh, that's why I said northwest. Anyways, um, yeah, it, it's a great draw, I guess. You've got the champ from Monte Carlo and Rublev. You've got Novak Djokovic looking to bounce back after a slow start to his clay court season last week. You've got, you know, some unseated guys. Abdullah Shelby, they f- didn't play during his time at Florida. The 19-year-old threw qualifying into a main draw of a 250. You've got my birthday brother, Juan Pablo Farias. You know, I'm always looking at that. Mimir Kasmanovic, who made, what, that final that first week in Estoril, he's put some points on the board. Yuri Lachetchka, rising check into the top 50. He's got some serious weapons. 
again, Djokovic, Rublev. Like, if Rublev makes the final here in Bosnia and it's him versus Djokovic and he wins that match, now that's a two-week run where maybe that does change your perception of Andre Rublev moving forward. But, God, every draw is good. We'll talk about them all throughout the course of the week here on the Mini Break podcast feed. Of course, this is not the only place, though, where we're talking about everything happening in the tennis world here at Cracked Rackets. Did a really fun interview last week with the newest addition to the WTA Top 100, two-time NCAA team champion, 2022 NCAA singles champion, and now number 89 in the world, Peyton Stearns, joined me on the Cracked Interview podcast to discuss making her first tour-level final in Bogota, her plans for the rest of 2023, and so much more. Always a pleasure to get the chance to chat with Peyton. So if that interests you, go check it out over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed for updates on the Challenger Tour, College Tennis World, and everything else. Go check out the Great Shot podcast feed. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out, as well, to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, for all of the latest equipment at the greatest prices, go to tennis-point.com today. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know that we sent you there. With all of that said, for the fantastic super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.